You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny. Some of you may remember that last August, we ran a special bonus episode, a conversation with the journalist Jennifer Sr., who had just published her cover story in The Atlantic, titled What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind, Grief, Conspiracy Theories, and One Family's Search for Meaning in the Two Decades Since 9-11. It was a searing, extraordinary piece of journalism, And my conversation with Jennifer about the way secrets can be buried in a family was profound and revealing. So it is with great pleasure that I learned this week that Jennifer has been awarded journalism's top honor, the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Writing. In honor of this crowning achievement, and as we're deep into producing season seven of Family Secrets, which will drop on September 1st, here again is our conversation. You had a personal connection to the McIlvains. Yes, although the funny thing is, how well do you know these kinds of people really? I will describe you to you how I knew them. And you'll see, they didn't etch themselves particularly deeply into my brain until after they'd lost Bobby, which is a sad thing to say. They were the parents of my brother's roommate, both in college and in young adulthood. My brother moved into Princeton, you know, his freshman year. He throws his stuff on a bunk bed, and the kid on the other bunk bed was Bobby McIlvain. And so when did I see the McIlvains? I saw them if we were at the end of the year picking up my brother or graduation, or then when the two of them were living in New York, I would see them if I just happened to run into them because they were in town and I was picking something up at my brother's house. You know, it wasn't a lot. I really didn't get to know them until after Bobby died. Um, and my impression of them is just that they were saintly, warm people who had devoted their lives to doing good in the world. They were both teachers. They one taught, you know, kids who were uh, troubled teens who were in an adolescent psych ward at a local hospital. Another taught reading in a trailer in a parking lot of a Catholic school. They were lovely people. Oh, and and his brother was this, this cheerful, sweet kid, you know, who was younger and kind of goofy and, uh, and 
not nearly the go-getter that his older brother was, but very funny. And Bobby made a much bigger and, and more singular impression upon you, it seems, during the time that you knew him. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Bobby was like a one-off. He was like a human being that never went into full production. You know what I mean? It was, he was an exceptional kid. Nobody in his family expected him to go to an Ivy League school, working class, um, you know, Irish Catholic family, uh, without any kind of expectation that he would go off and conquer the Ivy League. And he just came out freakishly smart, even as a young kid. And uh, when I met him, he was always just filled with ideas, very lively conversation, very precocious, um, charisma personified. I think intimidating to some people who knew him um, until they got to know him and realized that inside he was just a warm piece of peach pie. Um, he just was dazzling and was as if he had been sort of flung into the world from a slingshot. You know what I mean? He just had lots of purpose um, and had that air about him that any self-invented person does. They're just kind of unstoppable. There's a moment in your piece where you describe he was also athletic, and there's this moment where you describe a teenage Bobby McIlvain uh, throwing an immaculate pass uh, uh, as a basketball player that sets up an immaculate shot that flies right over the teenage head of Kobe Bryant. I mean... I mean, it just sounds like on every level, this kid was, as you described, just a one-off, a completely extraordinary. He was a miracle. Yeah. I mean, and Kobe Bryant, that's the other thing, right? There's something almost Zelig-like or Forrest Gumpian about Bobby's trajectory, right? They wound up playing each other in high school, and they were the two best kids on their team. And Bobby got 16 points off of Kobe and his teammates. I mean, that's extraordinary. That became the stuff of legend in the McElvain family as Kobe Bryant became Kobe Bryant. Um, then Bobby goes up and gets handpicked to take a class with Toni Morrison. And when, when Bobby dies, Toni Morrison sends his family not one but two condolence notes saying what a star Bobby was. And he just kept intersecting with exceptional people. You know, that's the kind of guy he was. So on, on 9-11... At first, when uh, the planes hit the towers, there wasn't a sense in the family or among Bobby's friends that that Bobby was in the towers, right? There, it was just um, nope. this horrific Nothing. thing that was unfolding, but there was no reason to, he didn't work there, he didn't live right there, there was no reason to think that he would have been there. That he worked near there, he was adjacent. Right, but but and here is what's interesting. His mother had a full-on premonition, a real deep, visceral sense that something was the matter. It was more than just a chirp in her stomach. She really thought something was wrong. But his father treated it like a news event. His brother had just been in the city that Thursday and had a beer with him, and he worked at Merrill Lynch. He had just moved there to corporate communications at Merrill Lynch. It just so happened he had to attend a conference that day. And to make things crazier, the theory about Bobby is that he had to go to a restaurant that to Windows on the World that morning for a conference, but that he had probably left before the planes hit because they found his body on the periphery of the site. And no one who was in Windows on the World was found. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, everybody was incinerated if they were up there. So... I want to quote something from from your piece, because really so much of your piece is about the shape or shapelessness or trajectory of grief and trauma. And you write, early on, the McIlvains spoke to a therapist who warned them that each member of their family would grieve differently. Imagine you're all at the top of a mountain, she told them, but you all have broken bones, so you can't help each other. You have to find your own way down. It was a helpful metaphor, one that may have saved the McIlvain's marriage. But when I mentioned it to Roxanne Cohen-Silver, a psychology professor at UC Irvine, who spent a lifetime studying the effect of sudden traumatic loss, she immediately spotted a problem with it. That suggests that everyone will make it down, she told me. Some people never get down the mountain at all. This is one of the many things you learn about mourning. 
when examining it at close range. It's idiosyncratic, anarchic, polychrome. A lot of the theories you read about grief are great, beautiful even, but they have a way of erasing individual experiences. Every mourner has a different story to tell. So what I'm wondering is if you can tell us now the different stories that Bobby's parents in particular went through in the wake, the long wake of Bobby's deaths, both Bob Sr. and Helen. Yes. Um, They are so different that they almost look like photo negatives of one another. It really struck me, um, and particularly Bob Sr., his story. Helen's was more recognizable to me. It isn't how I think I would have grieved, but it is a story that I could have sort of seen and predicted, which is, or not, knowing her. So Helen, this is how she chose to grieve. She chose to starve her grief. She didn't want people to pity her. She didn't want to manage people's awkwardness. She didn't want to manage their discomfort or listen to them babbling their condolences. And she didn't want to feel terrible all the time when people accidentally said the wrong thing to her. She went to a different grocery store for 15 years in order to not run into people she knew so that no one could sit there and just start incoherently trying to console her or muttering to a friend to, you know, like pointing and gossiping. She didn't want any of it. She would deflect. She would joke. It was her way of coping with it. And realized about 10 years in that it wasn't serving her very well to keep stoppering up all of her grief. She realized at some point that it was making her angry, that it was making her more of a gossip, that she was on a shorter fuse. But she thought, no, it is additionally compounded by the fact that I am not allowing myself to grieve, to fully inhabit this grief. The only time she allowed herself to do it was with this group of local women, all lost children, with whom she could speak in shorthand. They all knew what it was. They weren't going to single her out for special pity. She could say anything she wanted to them, and it was all okay. But they understood if she said, I was just with a friend of mine who went on and on and on about their child, and I just couldn't stand listening to them talk about their child. I am so jealous that she has this problem. I can't listen to people talk about their child. They all got it. It all made sense. But it was very hard for her. She didn't want to be a victim. She didn't want to be short. She didn't want to be short-tempered, you know, or curt. All these things. She had like a a strong superego kind of watching her own reaction. That was Helen. She gave the impression of having, quote-unquote, healed um, because she wasn't talking about it and she was, you know, moving on with her life. and, And so it was this impossible conundrum. Totally. One of her own making, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. She needed to do that in order to get through the day. That was in some ways her version of grieving was not grieving or not externally showing it. And yet, exactly. Something, some part of her was um, permanently, you know, there was scar tissue on top of a whole bunch of stuff that had not stitched up. So there was something painfully paradoxical about this situation, right? That she was like all stitched up, but just a watery mess inside. And so that was really hard. That was really, really hard for her. Um, And she just woke up one morning and decided she had to do something about it, which makes her very unusual. I mean, to make an executive decision one day that you were simply going to be another person is extraordinary. And she actually did that. She actually woke up one morning and did that. She She decided she wanted to be somebody else. She needed to be someone else, and so she was going to be that person. And what was that someone else? Someone who engaged more with her grief and who let go of all of the anger that was just accumulating in there. She really felt on some level like she was marinating in a brine of her own resentment and her own fury and her own hurt. And she hadn't let it out, you know, and it was just curdling her and curdling her insides. What you just described is a version of a secret. It's, you know, it's it's this kind of, almost one of the most toxic versions because it's that bottling up, you know, the idea of, I can make this go away if I just try hard enough. 
Totally. And here's what's amazing. Her suffering was a secret, and her son died in what must have been the most public act of mass murder in recent memory, right? I mean, she was denying herself her own suffering. She was keeping it almost from herself. And it's so poignant, and it can be so corrosive to our souls. You know, it can just rip us up. And I think it did her. And then meanwhile, her husband, Bobby's father, Bob Sr., was having, as you say, a completely uh, almost um, polar opposite kind of way, way of responding. Yes. Bob was the polar opposite. Everything that was light-colored on Helen's print was dark-colored on his, and everything that was dark-colored on her print was light on his. I mean, you just couldn't imagine two different ways of going about grieving. For Bob Sr., it's not just that he actively every day chooses to inhabit his grief, and that he cries every day, that um, his grief just lives very close to the surface. You just touch him, if you, a whole vat of grief kind of spills out. It's not just that. It's that for him, every day is kind of September 12th. It's like he wakes up and he's as raw as he was almost the day he discovered it. And to me, this was just an amazing revelation because there are all these kind of cultural wide imperatives that I think we have that, oh, you've got to move on. You've got to move past your grief or through your grief or around your grief or something, right? No, not him. He had no interest. He wanted to live in his grief. It seems like his form of grief was about engaging with the the details, real or imagined, around 9-11 and around Bobby's death was a way of keeping Bobby alive. Exactly. I mean, he treated Bobby's death as if it were an unsolved murder. He became, over time, gradually, very, very interested in um, all of the I'm going to call them conspiracy theories. He never would. He calls this 9-11 truth. Um, to me, they are conspiracy theories. That the government was behind this, that um, this was an orchestrated hit, you know, that the World Trade Center was embroidered with explosives. And he became very interested in, in, in sorry, explosives laid by the American government. And it was, you know, a controlled detonation. He has a theory for why they actually... Um, destroyed it that's quite arcane. What got his mind turning, though, was that it, it was based on looking at the medical examiner's report of his son's death. You know, I think what he initially was doing was simply worrying about, um, it was a very paternal instinct. He was haunted by the idea that Bobby might have suffered right before he died, that he might have asphyxiated, that he might have been up, that he might have jumped, right? That he didn't know how he died. Um, and in getting the medical examiner's report, he saw how he died. I mean, he was decapitated, and which to me suggests that a giant piece of debris, you know, came roaring out of the sky and that he didn't know what hit him. But for whatever set of reasons, Bob Sr. decided that because most of Bobby's injuries were on his front, not on his back, he had he couldn't have been running away from the building. He had to have been inside it and that this had to have been an inside job. So he started doing a lot of reading. He started reading history. He started doing all these things and came up with a very elaborate theory for why the government might, might have wanted to destroy the World Trade Center. And, you know, Bobby's brother, Jeff, thinks that by saying, oh, this is merely how he grieves, he thinks it's kind of trivializing his efforts. And that may be so, although what I think is interesting is that Bob Sr. said to me, in doing this every day, he is definitely keeping his Bobby close, that this is how he spends time in Bobby's company. So I might be giving short shrift to the theories, because I don't believe in the theories. I think the theories are wrong-headed. But he does not deny that like they serve, that it serves a purpose for him in, in doing all this research. He gets to stay close to Bobby. He gets to do this. And it's a way to keep parenting. And it, we kind of forget Bobby was so young. He was so young. He was only 26. He was still probably in some ways a little boy to 
Bob Sr. And he probably wanted to actively parent him, you know, still in some ways. This is him being a father. We'll be right back. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So Bobby kept, he was a prolific journal keeper. He left behind volumes and volumes of journals. And thinking about what it is to continue to parent or to keep someone alive or to keep a relationship alive in some way. You know, the, the journals become very, very important in this story. Helen and Bob, you know, have all the journals. Um, there is um, a young woman named Jen who is Bobby's girlfriend and is about to become Bobby's fiance. He has a ring. And he has asked her father for her hand in marriage, and he um, is about to propose to her. And, of course, that never happens. So Jen is his girlfriend, and she doesn't have any legal right to any of his possessions or belongings. And Jen asks if she can have the, the last journal that Bobby had um, been writing in. And Bob Sr. just hands it to her without a thought of, like, of course, here, here's a, a piece of, of Bobby. So that's a perfect summary. Um, Bob Sr. handed it to her without giving it a second thought because there they were cleaning out Bobby's bedroom. There was his last remaining journal open on his desk, and Jen started reading it and noticed that she was on practically every page. So it would be perfectly natural for her to want to have that, right? And he was distributing those journals anyway to everybody who was in the room. It was my brother. It was two other friends, I think, were there. Um, And he was saying, you might want to look at these in order to write your eulogies because me and my wife will not be in any shape to write them. 
And Helen was not even in any shape to go and clean out that bedroom. She was elsewhere. And if she'd been in that bedroom, she might have stopped her husband from giving away that final journal because it was hugely important to her that she have every molecule of everything her son had ever had. All the objects of the dead, a lot of them can just assume almost a kind of talismanic property, like they just, they're proxies for the person you love. And what's so interesting about a diary is that it's not even the same as like a t-shirt or a recovered photograph. It's this unusual thing where you get to almost hear that person's voice again and to spend time in their company. It's not conversation and that it's not two ways, but you are hearing from them. And she was so devastated when she found out that her husband had given away this final journal because here was this chance to hear her son's voice one last time. And she was being robbed of that opportunity. Particularly, I mean, he was at that moment, 26. She had like all of his kind of childhood journals when he was a kid, but he wasn't a fully formed adult. It wasn't like a, a chance to experience him as a grown human, you know, and here was this most recent thing. And she, she just, she didn't have it suddenly. Right. So she asks Jen if Jen will part with it. Correct. She asked Jen for it. She said, I would really like to see parts of it. I understand it's about you. But, and Jen kind of demurred. She hemmed and hawed. And she took the diary home with her. She went off to Michigan, where she was from, and took some time by herself. And then she came back and lived with the McIlvains for about two months because she just couldn't stand being in her apartment by herself. So there were many opportunities for Helen to say, you know, I'd really like to see that diary, which was no longer there, right? It was in Jen's apartment. She had taken it and then got off to Michigan. So the diary is not there. Helen is looking at this future almost daughter-in-law who she doesn't know very well. She hadn't spent much time in her company and asking for it and not getting the response she wants. And by the end, she was begging. She was simply saying, look, if Bobby is describing a tree, can you just give me the words? Just tell me what he says about the tree. I just want the words, just the words. And Jen still never did it. And her stay there ended in terrible tension. And with Jen slamming the door, behind her, bursting into tears, getting in her car and driving off. And she never saw the McIlvains again. And when I saw Helen before, you know, to do this story, Jen, she couldn't come up with Jen's last name. She kept saying, it's something short. It's like Jen Cove. And I said, it was Jennifer Cobb. And she said, oh, that's right, Cobb, C-O-B. And I said, C-O-B-B. <laughs> she really had forgotten. She had buried her the way she'd buried her son. She had just forgotten. It always really amazes me uh, and humbles me to think about what uh, the, the ways in which our memories, especially our memories under the pressure of intense emotion, um, just either end up with these huge lacunae, you know, just these gaps, or tell their own stories just, you know, that are just different stories. And, you know, one of the things that you're, that you're describing now makes me think of um, a, a moment in your piece where, where you, you describe the yearning and searching stage of grief, right? And, and so at this point, Helen and Jen too are in this yearning and searching stage and the journals become this kind of emblematic of that more than anything else. It's a way to resurrect the dead, even though you know that they can't be resurrected, right? That's when you are just desperately searching for them, though you know rationally they're never coming back. So it's a widow crying out to her husband as she's doing the dishes or talking to him. You know, it's, it can take many, many forms. It was first described by a pair of British you know, psychiatrists. Um, one of them was John Bowlby who did, um, attachment theory. But yeah, and but the real kind of author of that is a guy named Colin Murray Parks. And yeah, it's perfect. And I think that Helen 
was stuck on that diary for like 10 years. She was yearning and searching and she really, really um, got sort of bogged down in it. She took it to the members of her that group that I was describing of women who had all lost kids. She would talk about it with them and they would joke about breaking into Jennifer's house and liberating the diary, you know, so that she could have it, stealing it. Um, she was really angry at her husband for a very long time. She would needle him about it, you know, for years this went on. She couldn't get past it. There was one phrase that Helen became very focused on. She wasn't sure where she had read it or heard it, um, but the phrase was Bobby's, she was certain, and it was life loves on. And she was very focused on that, and that became a kind of motto or or a a way of thinking um, for the family, that Bobby had said that and that that's what they needed to do. Exactly. It became like some kind of organizing motto for their grief. And to your point about how humbling and mind-blowing it is that our memories can desert us, she has that motto, life loves on, engraved in a bracelet, right, that she wears every day. A friend gave it, gave it to her. Her friends also took on that motto. They have it, like, sort of stamped at the bottom of their emails. His, and Bob Sr. has it tattooed on his arm. Right. I mean, so this is on his skin. So you would think if you are going to live by that phrase that your son has written, you would like know where it came from. Right. <laughs> you have some idea. And yet she hands me all these diaries and tells me, OK, well, I know it's in here. And she thinks that she knows where it is. And she goes looking for it. She's sure she knows where it comes from, which is that when like a family friend died, he wrote it then. But it turned out not to be there. So I went on this mad hunt to find this phrase. And, you know, how I found it, I'm not sure I want to give it away, but it was this extraordinarily, I mean, it was this insane kind of uh, sleuthing adventure that I went on to find this thing. And it turns out, I mean, if you want to talk about secrets you keep from yourself, she knew, everyone in the family knew, they had just all forgotten where it came from. They had just forgotten. And it is amazing what we can, as you say, the lacuna in our memories are just extraordinary. I mean, they are, they are the size of an ocean sometimes, and you can't believe it. It should be solid land. You know, I mean, the things that we know to be certain sometimes are just made of water. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? 
but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. I want to quote one other little uh, passage from, from your piece, which is, Memories of traumatic experiences are a curious thing. Some are vivid, some are pale. Pretty much all of them have been amended in some way, great or small. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to our curated reels. We remember the trivial and forget the exceptional. Our minds truly have minds of their own. So I I don't think it would be giving anything away, and everyone should just simply read your beautiful piece, but to say that down the road, once this phrase and its origin has been tracked down, you know, like the Holy Grail, um, yeah. you send it to your editor at the Atlantic, like a, a screen, yep. a screenshot of where it was. And he sends you a note that says, and, and Bobby has a, like very dense sort of indecipherable, you know, difficult to make out handwriting. And your editor writes to you and says, isn't it life lives on, not life loves on. Exactly. Yes, he did. And my heart sank. And I, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't tell you. I mean, I, I was on an Amtrak and I almost started to scream. I did not know what to do because then you're faced with a real journalistic conundrum, which is, do you tell a family that's been living by this motto for 20 years? You know, it's almost, there's a word for this um, when when it's an oral misapprehension, when you hear something incorrectly. It's called a mondegreen. And, you know, like the Jimi Hendrix, excuse me while I kiss the sky. And everybody thinks it's, excuse me while I kiss this guy. <laughs> you know, so it's like the equivalent of that, but in print, where you're looking at the wrong, like, it, it was just, it was misinterpreted. It was misread. It didn't matter. In the end, it didn't matter. Bobby's journals are filled with wisdom, all kinds of unexpected wisdom. The funny and amazing and weird thing is that although Helen and Bob had lots of Bobby's journals for a while, um, they didn't read them very much. And there's lots of great things in there. When I finally glimpsed that diary, I'm happy to say that. There was plenty in there to look at that I thought was really much more beautiful and much more resonant um, than life lives on, life loves on. You know, it's a little bit hallmarky. Life loves on is slightly more profound because it suggests we have some kind of drive to love in our hearts no matter what. And I kind of liked it. But life lives on is kind of disappointing. It didn't matter. There's, there's plenty that Bob observed and said in his life that's much more interesting. But isn't it funny? I mean, that like this is this is how our memories get made. They get made falsely, or they don't matter. You know, we choose to live by. They become that person's words. You know, we are constantly inventing and reinventing the dead. At this point, Bobby may as well have said it, and it's something he could have said. And I think that that's even more interesting in a funny way. Is that we're all perfectly happy to assign him those words because they seemed so Bobby. He was just this little Yoda boy, you know. So, like, why not? Sure. It seemed Bobby-like. Lives, loves, whatever. So true that in the end it doesn't really matter. I mean, the way that Helen got, you know, fixated on the journal um, for all those years. You, the journalist, got fixated on the phrase, right? And find and finding it. Um, I did. And in the end, it 
doesn't really matter where the phrase came from or even exactly what the phrase was in the the profound emotional scheme of the story. When you do uh, travel to Washington, D.C., and, and you you meet Jen, Bobby's girlfriend, um, she is prepared to and has you know wanted to, for years, have Helen be able to read the journal. Um, she gives you the journal and says, at some point, I'd love to have this back, but, you know, here. I mean, one of the most moving parts of your piece are Helen's epiphany when she reads Bobby's final journal that Bobby was a young man. He wasn't a boy anymore, and that she, his mother, wasn't at the center of his life, that Jen was at the center of his life, which is why Jen had so desperately wanted to hold on to that, that piece of him. The painful secret that was sort of in this journal, I mean, what, you know, in some ways, Helen just wanted it because she wanted everything that was Bobby's. She just wanted to reconstruct him. It was just some metaphorical way of making him whole if she couldn't have him. But in some ways, it was also just glimpsing who he was at that moment in time, being able to spend time in his company again. And yes, wanting to see, you know, she was all over his previous journals. His family was all over his previous journals. He spoke glowingly about his family in those journals. He was still a young boy, and unlike most adolescent kids, he wasn't ripping up his family. He was talking about how great they were. He was very close to them. So I think her fantasy in some way was that there would just be more about the nuclear family, but it was a relief, I think, in some ways. It's to discover, oh, he was his own man. I was, you know, I, I wasn't a part of his life anymore. And there are things in that journal that are so mind-blowing that, like, shed whole windows into, like, I mean, there are goose-pimpling things, but I, mean, I think that that was, like, a big takeaway for her in some ways, was to sort of see, oh, my boy's all grown up. He's all grown up. This, this wasn't about me. I mean, the things that it was about were extraordinary, that the journal was about were extraordinary. You know, and the words in that journal were extraordinary. I mean, I, I get I get chills just thinking about them. What is so amazing is that there was this thing that was looming for 20 years that she was sure contained. I, it did not contain, it never does. It did not have inside it what she thought it did. And the reasons Jen kept it weren't the reasons she thought she did. You know, all the motives we assign to other people are never, the stories we tell ourselves are so often not the stories that are true. You know, how we know what we think we know does not wind up being the right thing. I mean, you know, having the wrong tattoo, having the wrong story is in some ways a metaphor for everything. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it also strikes me that in the end, in being able to see that final journal, she actually had a moment that she would have had had Bobby lived, which was the realization, oh, my boy is a young man, and I am not, you know, the, the son at the center of his universe. I am. That's right. And, and, and that she, she actually ended up developmentally getting to have that, even though uh, way later and in a completely heartbreaking way. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean, I think that, again, because he was so young, so much of his life was still locked away in his mother's heart as like her little boy, you know? And why, why wouldn't he be sort of enshrined in that way in her heart and in her memory? But... You were exa- and had she got to go to a wedding and see him pledge his love to to Jen, had she had a tiny grandbaby, you know, from Bobby, anything, seen them buy a house, seen them even move in together, he was still living with my brother, you know? I mean, he still seemed like a kid. He still seemed like a kid. So as you say, yes, I think that it did allow her maybe to... Right, go one beat further down the road 
and see him as a fully realized adult. I mean, she knew it anyway. But I think that this was living in his head, in his mature head, as a person whose thoughts were now utterly consumed by someone else. I will never, ever encourage anyone to get on with their lives, even gently. Um, I think it's a kind of tyranny. I think some people never get beyond their grief, and that's a choice they make, and they or don't make their grief, their grief just holds them and not the other way they they can't hold it and that's one thing i learned from being around bob senior it's not for me to judge if it gets in the way of your family's life it's something that you have to deal with and it's something you have to contend with within a marriage all those things but i think the biggest thing is like the epistemological thing that we have been discussing which is like how do you know what you know <sighs> i mean no one had the same I mean, let me just put this out there. Helen thought that Jen had lived with the family for one week after Bobby died. Jeff, Bobby's younger brother, who was living with his parents at the time, thought that Jen lived with them for six months. Jen thought it was for two months. Okay. They thought, they were sure they knew where Life Loved On came from, and they were wrong. They had no idea where it came from. Jen was sure when she was living with the McElveins that she slept in Bobby's brother's room and that Jeff very bravely slept in his brother's bed, his dead brother's bed. Whereas Jeff was absolutely certain that Jen very bravely slept in her dead fiance's bed. I mean, it made me think, I can never sit anywhere and argue with any kind of force about any memory that I have, about anything that I think I know and be dead certain anymore. It's, and that doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist, that there isn't such a thing as like real objective truth. I think that there is. But I mean, I, I just think in terms of the fallibility of our own memories, I think that our, our emotions so shape them, misshape them, reshape them, prettify them, discolor them, do all sorts of things, you know. I mean, the image that I has, have is of a snow globe getting all shaken up, that if you had reported this story four years ago, or if you had reported it four years from now, those memories among all of the McElveins might be completely different than the ones that they had during that sliver of time? Oh, for sure. I had memories of the McElveins telling me things about their grief at years three and four, because I would see them. They would come to visit my parents. You know, I would see them when I was visiting my mom in Florida. They they would, um, you know, sort of describe things, and I would raise them during the interview, and they wouldn't remember having said them to me. You know, I mean, I had very different memories of what they told me about their grieving. And here's something. Okay, here's something. This is, I think, the craziest thing. After the piece came out, I had dinner with Jeff and Jen, who hadn't seen each other in 20 years. And Jeff said to me, you know, I really love the piece. But I'll tell you something. I both did and did not recognize my dad. Everything that he said to you, you captured accurately and exactly, and it's one facet of my father, but it's not the only facet of my father. I know a very different man. I know a different guy. And when my wife read that story, she wasn't sure she recognized the man you described either. It's just one side of himself that he was interested in showing you. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm a journalist. I thought I captured him in much better, you know, a much fuller kind of complex. I thought I didn't, I didn't think he was like monodimensional at all. I thought that I had really captured something about his essence, but they were telling me that I missed something, which means that I had the wrong tattoo. I mean, what do you do with that? How do we know what we know? All the selves, all of the selves within us. And all the stories, right? All the stories we tell, how reliable are our stories and our memories? How, you know, how reliable was the thing that I wrote? You know, I thought it was pretty darn reliable. And it was, you know, and it wasn't.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now Right Rug Flooring.